And then we'll dive into Mark chapter 9. Father God, we thank you one more time, God, that, that we have the scriptures, that you have not left us to our own devices. Father, Lord, you've given us a word of, uh, uh, from heaven, Father, and we pray that now for the next 30, 40 minutes, Father, you would give us a understanding, Father. Give us eyes to see, hearts to, uh, to have compassion towards, uh, ears to hear. And Father, Lord, we just pray that you would help us in all these things. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 9, go ahead and flip there in your Bibles uh, if you're not there already. We've been working through the, the gospel according to St. Mark for some time now. I don't know how many sermons deep we are at this point. But where we ended last week, at the end of chapter 8, was this phenomenal call to the Christian life from Christ himself. Right, you'll remember that, that it's in chapter 8 that, that we finally get the answer to the question that Mark has been driving at from the beginning of the book, which is, who is Jesus? And we looked and we've seen that Jesus, in, in, in Peter's confession in chapter 8, that he's the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one the prophets spoke of. He's the one that the law has promised to send, that this is now here. To which Jesus says, that's correct. Then we looked at, well, this was correct, Peter's understanding of what would then take place. He thought, it's time to go. He's like, we're going to march down to Rome, kick those suckers out, set up God's kingdom here on earth. Christ is like, nah, man, get behind me, Satan. Right? You remember, it's paraphrasing, of course. Uh, but he looked at Peter and he said, no, 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 like, like the Christ must suffer and die. And, and he begins to explain these things clearly. And so that's where we're coming into this morning, right? And look at verse 1 here, chapter 9, because this actually goes with the preceding section before it moves on. And he said to them, this is Christ talking to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Go ahead and answer that. After he has come with power. Now, Let's stop right there, because a lot of liberal theologians would say, see, the scriptures can't be right, because these brothers all died, and then here we are still in a world of sin, still in a world of suffering. What's, what's, what's Jesus meaning here? Well, he's getting ready to mean like exactly what's going to happen next. You see, things are not always as they seem. How many of you have ever believed something so true, so like, like you've seen it with your own eyes, and you said, yeah, that's, that's how that thing works? To which then somebody reveals, no, no, you got it all wrong, right? Like, looks can be deceiving. But never was this more true than when the Son of God left heaven and came to earth. When the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. When the, the fullness of deity came and dwelt in a body. When the essence of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. You see, what Jesus is getting ready to do, right, this transfiguration account that happens in chapter 9 here, he's getting ready to give a glimpse, if you will, into who he truly is, right? The question, who is Jesus, is still pervasive throughout Mark's gospel. Um, R.C. Sproul wrote a book uh, that was dealt on this subject, right? And he said that the, the, the form of God in the world has 
often taken a, 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 a you know, it's, it's moving to somewhere, right? And he says that, that it begins in the humblest of places. He would say that this is the humiliation of Christ, that, that God Himself descended as man, put on human flesh, he said this, this was a great condescension of man, right? But, but often we know that, that, that Christ is moving towards something, right? It's moving from humiliation to exaltation. Like that's the, the trajectory of the Scriptures. And that's the day we long for to see Christ fully exalted, to see all sin, all suffering swept away. And so, but it's here that in this story throughout the Gospels we see this humiliation of Christ. We see the suffering of Christ. And only... Very rarely does, does God begin to, to move the curtains back, to give his disciples a, a glimpse into ultimate reality, a glimpse into what is actually true. And the transfiguration account, in, uh, verses 2 through 13, confirmed for us that Jesus, despite having the outward appearance of a mere mortal man, Jesus of Nazareth, in his nature and essence, is God, deity, dressed in a body. Although he's not the kind of Messiah, Savior, Peter thought they needed, or that the nation of Israel was expecting, he is exactly the Messiah, Savior that they do in fact need. See, Christ oftentimes looks defeated, but actually victorious. He, he dies, buried by men, but will be raised and exalted by God. He looks like a regular person, like me or you. But in actuality, underneath those layers of humanity, he's deity. And right, this is so important because what, what, what Jesus has just said to his disciples, he's like, yeah, like, I am the Savior, but I'm going to die. You can imagine the weightiness of this, right? What? Are you sure? Like, why, like, why do you think Peter was so adamant to say, nah, you're wrong, Jesus, it's because his expectations of what was actually true was that the Messiah could not suffer, that he could not die. So this transfiguration is a, is a preview of the coming attractions. It follows Peter's great confession, his, Jesus' prediction of his death. He calls his disciples to radical discipleship and his promise that some standing with him will see the kingdom. But I want to do something real quick, just... Put your finger in Mark and flip to Exodus. Just flip to Exodus. Because something's happening here in the narration of this transfiguration. I want to call our attention to early on here. You see in verse 2 of Mark chapter 9, Jesus takes three disciples up on a mountain. Flip over to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. Because this story oftentimes... Is a hearkening back to something that's already happened. Mark, or Exodus 24. Look at verse 1 there. Go ahead and read it. I'm not going to read it to you. What's happening? You see, Moses is, he goes with three people plus 70 elders up to the mountain. You see, the Bible's connected. It's not a despair. It's not the Old Testament's done away with. We no longer need it in our Christian lives today. None of their Christian scriptures. Flip over to Exodus 34. You see, because Jesus in Mark's account is transfigured, right? His clothes become radiantly white. 
Exodus 34, verse 29, what happens? Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain. You've seen the similarities. Flip back to Exodus 23. You guys are like, Pastor, come on now. Calm down. We're going to get back to Mark 9 in a minute. Right? And in Mark's account of the transfiguration, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. Look at Exodus 23, verses 15 and 16. What's happening? See, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. Last place, Exodus 24, verse 16. In Mark chapter 9, verse 7, a voice speaks from that cloud, that being God. And in Exodus 24, 16, a voice speaks from the cloud, that being God. Go ahead and flip back to Mark chapter 9. You see the similarities here, right? What's, what's, what does Mark want us to do? Why, back up. Why did God himself include this transfiguration account in the scriptures for our understanding today? clear, isn't it? A, a new Moses has arrived. A greater Moses has arrived. The long-awaited prophet had been promised, has arrived. Let's look back at Mark chapter 1, or Mark chapter, chapter 9. You see, the call to follow Jesus in discipleship is not easy. Right, we went over this last week. It's a costly calling. It's always filled with encouragement and confirmation. Jesus provides just what he says he, we need. He says, I assure you, right, truly in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, right, that there are some, stand, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, right? Jesus is not in error here. He's not talking about the final eschaton, the, the final days, the arrival of the kingdom. He was talking about they're getting ready to see something. They're getting ready to see Jesus coming in his power. Look at, look at verses 1 through 3. Let's read them again. He says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You see, Jesus was God incognito. Jesus takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain by themselves. Tradition would tell us that it's Mount Tabor, or, but Mount Hermon like, is probably more accurate. It's far north of Galilee. Uh, it's probably where they were. right? And he was transformed, transfigured in front of them. Right? This, this word transformed, transfigured, means changed from something to something else. Right? We're taught this in, in elementary school. Right? With the butterfly and the caterpillar. Like, it's, the, it's the same root word where we get uh, metamorphosis. This, this changing. It speaks of a radical transfiguration that reveals God's true, Jesus' true essence in an outward visible manifestation. His clothes become dazzling white. Psalm 104 says, My soul prays Yahweh, Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty. In splendor. And for a brief moment, the curtain is pulled back for these three disciples to see it as it truly is. Oftentimes, when we're going through 
issues in life or struggles or um, almost always I try to remind myself that there are things working which we cannot see. Like there are collars visible that you and I cannot see. There are sounds to be heard that you and I do not have ears to hear. There are passions with which to to feel that you and I in our physical human body cannot feel. At every moment of every day, you see what we see, we see dimly. There's a story in the Old Testament, right, where two, two of God's guys are standing there and they're surrounded by the enemy. And the guy looks... So the other guy says, what are we going to do? And do you remember what he has? He, he prays that, that, that God would open his eyes to see realities, what's really true and what's really real, to have eyes to see. They, he says, God granted that man the, the vision to see, and around them was the enemy, but around the enemy was the angels of the Lord. Every moment of our life, this has happened. So it was with Jesus, that Jesus was God incognito. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. You see, some, somewhere between the, the, the clothes that Jesus was wearing, as, as they were in the process of becoming brilliant light, Elijah and Moses appeared beside him, talking to Jesus. Now, what were they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke does. They were speaking of his death, of what was to come for Christ. Jesus would lead the people of God out of the bondage of sin in this new exodus through his death and resurrection. He would constitute a new people called the church. You see, Elijah and Moses were representing something here. They were both great deliverers, Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. And Elijah, the, the greatest prophet, he represented the prophets. So these two together represent the prophetic tradition that points to the Messiah. And their, their, their appearance is drawing from Malachi chapter 4, which says this. It says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. The statues and ordinances I command him at Horeb for all Israel... Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with their curse. You see, with their appearing here at this point, the law and prophets are signaled as being fulfilled in the coming of Messiah who has brought the kingdom of God near. You see, while there's many similarities between this mountaintop experience and the mountaintop experience that Moses had at Mount Sinai, this is no exact story. You see, this is not Mount Sinai all over again. This is a gospel mountain, not a law mountain. Here the law of God and the grace of God converge in the one who is God incarnate and fulfilled all the Old Testament promise. You see, the call on you and I is to look, see what's really real. This Jesus is God. 
no more mortal man. So first, we are to, to look at the glory of Jesus and understand that He is the Son of God. Number two, we are to, to listen to the voice of God the Father. Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. Understandably so. Understandably so. Like, like we beat our chest, we said, man, them, them fools, they just didn't get it. But I would have got it. No, you wouldn't have. They were terrified. They seen Christ for who he truly was, the glorified Christ. Peter, Peter he just doesn't know what to say. He's like, ah, you know, it's good that we're here, homie. It's, it's real good. You think? He didn't suggest that this mountaintop summit should be continued and that he, James, and John will gladly construct these three tents, these three tabernacles for Christ and the honored guest from the past. What's, what's Peter doing? Is he placing Jesus on the same standing with Elijah and Moses? Is this just another prophet to come? Does he think that on a mountain in isolation is where God wants his workers? Peter was so excited and scared, he just had to say something. His mind would only catch up with his words after the cross and after the resurrection. He will never understand the person and work of Christ apart from the cross and resurrection. Peter thought, this is it. (laughs) We have arrived, folks. He didn't understand that in isolation, apart from the cross, apart from the crucifixion, apart from the resurrection, that, that leaving them out, then Jesus by himself is at best just a, simply a moralist, and at worst a self-destructive fool. Leave out the cross and there is no atonement. Leave out the cross and there is no resurrection. There is no victory over sin. In sinful weakness, we would avoid the cross, stay on the mountaintop, and make ourselves comfortable. Isn't that true of us today? We get to a place where we're like, God, life's good. We just, we in cruise control now. Make ourselves comfortable. In contrast, Jesus will embrace the cross. Like, he doesn't say, nah, let's do it. He doesn't say, like, okay, let's build, build the tabernacle, build the temple. We're going we to camp out here. No. Oh. Jesus will embrace the cross. He will ascend Calvary's hill. He will drink the cup of suffering filled with the wrath of God. You see, our human perspective is often foolishness. But the divine perspective is exactly what we need. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. You see, suddenly, this cloud appears out of nowhere. God's Shekinah glory cloud overshadows and envelops in. Like it's, it's like a fog that has rolled in. You see, we do not need man-made tents and tabernacles. Rather, we need the presence of God himself. The living God who now speaks that with thunder and authority and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? This statement recalls Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. 
calls to mind Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says God will send his prophet and you must listen to him. You see, this is God's beloved, one-of-a-kind, unique, stands-alone son. Jesus is not just another Moses. Jesus is not just another Elijah. This is God's son. So we are to listen to him. We are to follow him. When the cloud disappears, when it rolls out, is Elijah and Moses, where are they at? Gone. And Jesus alone remains. You see, Moses and Elijah were great revealers of truth along with all the other prophets of the Old Testament. But the voice of God commands us, like, and this is not just to Peter, James, and John, right? This command that this is my beloved son, listen to him, also applies to us today. The voice of God commands us to listen to his son, Jesus. Give him your ears. Have eyes only for him. He can give you what neither Moses nor Elijah could give. This is God's vision. This is God's perspective on the matter. And so we are to listen to the voice of God the Father. How many times have you heard, well, if God would just say to me, go to this college, marry this girl, take this job, right? Just God, just give me a voice, right? Especially college age people, you know, high schoolers. Like, man, I'm just... It would just be easier if God would just crack the sky and just audibly say, you, there, do this. But listen, he's given us a more sure word than even that. He's given us, listen to his son. Finally, we're to learn from the suffering of God's servants. You see, the, the three disciples have learned that despite his earthly outward appearance, right, his flesh and bones, Jesus is God. The transfiguration has proved that beyond any reasonable question that this is reality. But might this transfiguration mean that Jesus could triumph without the cross, right? Could this revealing of the curtain mean that perhaps what Jesus just said about dying for the sins of humanity might not actually need to happen because we just seen who he truly is. He's God in the flesh. Might the Messiah enter into his glory and establish his kingdom and power now, given that this breathtaking display they had just witnessed? Who says that the cross must come before the crown? Jesus himself. Jesus does. You see, what he has just experienced has not weakened his resolve to go to Calvary. It, was embold, it has emboldened him to go and drink the last drop of cup of divine wrath in the place of unworthy and helpless sinners. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The disciples are commanded... Don't tell anyone. This is one of the last times that Jesus will say this in the Gospel of Mark, to, to not say anything, to keep it under wraps, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This is, uh, the, the, after the resurrection, proclamation will be in order, right? Go tell them that this happened after the fact. The Son of Man title appeared, like, like Jesus just said, until the Son of Man um, 
rises from the dead, right? The, the Son of Man title which Jesus gives himself appears only twice in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, both in chapter 2. Now it will occur with greater regularity, right? This is a key understanding to understand the Gospel of Mark, especially in the context of his suffering. And this title, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, which says this. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Listen, make no mistake, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the coming Lord of glory who will inherit a universal and everlasting kingdom. But first, he will have to suffer and die. And the three disciples kept questioning one another about what this rising from the dead, like, what's he talking about? They had a place in their theology for such a doctrine, but it was expected to take place at the end of the age, right? We see this in other examples of Scripture where Jesus starts to talk about resurrection. They're like, oh yeah, we know. Last day, everyone's going to rise up from the dead. We know that. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Like, before then, before that day, I myself will be resurrected. Look at verse 11. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The presence of Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration References to resurrection from the dead and the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah would con- constitute a compelling argument. We only got a little bit of time left, folks. And so it prompts a question in the disciples' minds. They're thinking through, like, okay, like we might have days before this all winds down. And so this, this, this question comes to their mind. He said, so why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now watch this surprising connection Jesus makes. He said, Elijah does come first and restores everything. He replied, how then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, they were thinking like, the only thing left is Elijah come. But he connects it. Christ himself connects it that, 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 that the Son of Man must suffer as well. The same divine scriptures that predicted the coming of Elijah prior to the day of the Lord also predicted a suffering Messiah. You see, how did the disciples miss Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 52, 13, Isaiah 53, 12? How did they miss it? You see, we read the whole Old Testament in light of the promise found in Genesis 3, 15. And all of it unfolds from there. You see, the Son of Man will suffer, be treated with contempt, be killed, and rise from the dead. As for Elijah, to the question they asked, Jesus said, He has come. Of course, referring to John the Baptist. He said they did whatever they wanted with him, killed him, rejected his message, beheaded him. And Jesus just said, They will do the same with me. John fulfilled his assignment given to him by God, and so would Christ, our Lord. God would faithfully see them through their suffering in greatest hours of trial, 
if God would send John the Baptist to be rejected and killed and send Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God incarnate, deity in human form, and He would suffer, and God would see to it to raise Him from the dead. Might we today trust Him to do the same for us? In conclusion, in closing, and immediately everybody's ears perked up. Why was Jesus gloriously transfigured? Why did this great revealing, pulling back the curtain, happen? Why did the God who came incognito momentarily, yet unmistakably reveal himself and his true identity in nature? Ten reasons. See, you thought we were going to be done quick. Number one, why did he do this? It was to reveal Jesus as God incarnate. This would solidify for Peter, James, and John who they're dealing with here. We've seen the miracles, Jesus. We've seen the healing. We've seen you tell storms to quiet down. And they listened. But never had they seen something like this. So it was to reveal Jesus as God incarnate. Number two, it was to strengthen Christ as he began his march to the cross. Luke tells us, fills us in on the conversation between uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and it was to to just strengthen him, to to talk about what's going to happen. So number two was to strengthen Christ. Number three, it was to fortify the disciples in obeying the call to radical discipleship. Remember where we just left in the end of chapter 8, right? It's like, like this... You reject me, I reject you kind of thing going on at the end of chapter 8, right? Lifetime commitment that all of life now revolves around Christ. We're to not be ashamed, right? Look at, I mean, just look back at verse 8. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Remember we answered this question last week? Nothing. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Answer, Nothing. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. This call to discipleship was radical. And so Jesus uh, transfigured, was transfigured on this mountain to fortify the disciples in their obeying the call to radical discipleship. Number four, it was to demonstrate that M- Messiah Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets as God's final, complete, climactic revelation. Let me just riff on this for a minute here. There's no other word that you and I need. Just let that sink in. There's no other word that you and I need. Just going to keep saying that for the next 30 minutes. There is no coming prophet anymore. We need nothing else. We have the scriptures. Number five, it was a confirmation of Peter's confession. And Jesus Christ, Peter just said, You are the Messiah, and then here it's confirmed. He reveals himself for who he truly is. Number six, it was to teach that the Messiah who is crucified is the same Messiah who will reign over his kingdom in glory. This is the one. This one who would be crucified. This one who will die will also reign. 
over his kingdom and glory. You see, what Peter, James, and John got to see is just a glimpse of what you and I will see in the last days. That God reigns. Christ reigns. There's coming a kingdom. And Jesus is in charge. Number seven, it was to encourage the disciples in light of Jesus' prediction of his own death. Again, they waited six days. We didn't really... Verse 2, and after six days, you can imagine the mood, weighty, heavy, like, man, we've given up our businesses, we've given up our livelihood, and then he just said he's going to die. So this revealing of Jesus' true identity is to encourage them through the midst of the coming suffering. Number eight, if fulfilled at least in part, the promise given in Mark 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That transfiguration, at least in part, happened. Number nine, it reaffirmed the Father's love and delight in His Son. Jesus is the chosen one. He is God's beloved Son, and it's one we should listen to. Number 10, it calls us to trust and follow the one and only Son who is the image of the invisible God and the radiance of God's glory. In Jesus and Jesus alone, we can behold the glory and greatness of God and live. Outside of Christ, there's no life. Outside of Christ, there is no true living. Outside of Christ, you are dead. In your trespasses and your sins, Ephesians would tell us. And it's only in seeing Christ for who He truly is, seeing that He is the image of the invisible God, seeing, beholding the radiance of God's glory, right? Hebrews would tell us that that this is why there's no coming word. There's nothing else that we need, that this is the one. He says that in many times and in many ways. Let's just pause. I I just love that. It's like, yeah, some guys at some point, they once said, yeah, all that. Like, if you ever want to, like, quote papers or something, like if you're paraphrasing, yeah, yeah, some guy said, that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he said, God at many times and in many ways spoke through the prophets, but has now spoken through the final prophet, the last prophet, through Christ, his son. If you want to see God, look at Christ. If you want to see God's glory, look at Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, The Son of God became man that the children of men might become children of God. Jesus Christ is the hero of the Bible. God God in a body, the Savior of sinners, the final sacrifice and the glory of God made flesh. He took the three disciples up the mountain for a glimpse of glory. He wants to take you and me up to heaven to glory forever. So the question for us today is, will we follow him? Will we trust him? You see, we become what we behold. So the question is, what are we beholding? And may we all behold Jesus now and forever. Let's pray. Father God, your word says it plainly and clearly here for us, Father. Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. 
But it also says that there's coming a suffering, a crucifixion and death and resurrection, Father Lord. If you, being in the form of God, came and suffered, why should we think that we would not suffer? Lord, embolden us. Give us eyes to see that which we cannot see outside of you. Father, at this moment right now, in this, perhaps this very room, Father, there are colors outside the rainbow that we cannot envision. May we live in this constant understanding and awareness that what we see can be deceiving. That our trials, our hardships in life are not your judgment upon us. But Father, Lord, it is your refining fire making us more into the image of Christ. May we embrace that with joy unspeakable. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.